How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Uh, give you the opportunity to make sure that you're in right relationship with the Lord through confession of sin, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so very grateful that we can come together to worship you. We're very grateful that we have the opportunity to study your word, to be reminded of your uh, great majesty and holiness as described in the scripture, and to realize that you have made it possible on the basis of grace through faith to have a relationship with you, to be saved, to be justified, redeemed, regenerate, because you paid the price in full through Jesus Christ, your Son. And, Father, we're so grateful for that. Thank you that we have uh, cleansing, complete forgiveness of sin at salvation, and that ongoing cleansing by simply admitting to you the sin in our lives. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand more about facing adversity and handling the challenges and difficulties of life as we continue our study in First Peter, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Okay, we've got a couple other things we're going to do before we get into First Peter. Last week, I got an email from one of the long-distance members of the congregation who frequently communicates with me. The questions as, as this individual, as she was communicating with a cousin about aspects of, of Mormonism, and she was getting the usual statement that you get when you're talking to a Mormon about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you read their doctrinal statements and their explanations, what you discover is they, they use all of the biblical terminology, and you have to parse it. You have to look at it in terms of what else do they say about Jesus in order to understand that when they say they believe Jesus is the Son of God, they don't mean what you and I mean or what the Bible means by Jesus is the Son of God. And that's the same way if you're talking on different topics now with uh, speaking of the Pope. Uh, if you are talking to somebody who's Roman Catholic, I've told, I think I've told you before, when I was working on my uh, master's in philosophy down here at the University of St. Thomas, there were some brilliant Jesuit priests and other priests down there. And there were two of us who were THM graduates of Dallas Seminary, pastors in Houston, free grace, dispensationalists. And we would sit down and spend hours and we would make these statements that we would all agree with, and then we would start asking them, well, what do you mean by faith? What do you mean by justification? And you would have to spend hours talking and defining terms and getting extremely precise and detailed. And I know I get some feedback sometimes from people who think, you know, you just get so detailed. Well, you ought to hear some of the questions that I get asked from people in the congregation. I have to uh, 
I have to be pretty well studied just to answer some of the questions in the congregation. You just can't make general statements because people will then ask you for more specifics. So I try to head some of those things off at the past. But anyway, in light of what I said on Sunday morning in Matthew, that the issue with Jesus is, on the one hand, with Islam, Jesus is more than a prophet. And the issue with Islam is that he he's more than a prophet also, and he's more than the, quote, son of God, which they will agree to. And somebody sent me this video today, and it is a super, super uh, five-minute or less explanation of the essence of Mormon theology. And if you don't understand where those guys are coming from when they knock on your door, you're going to get befuddled when they start saying they agree with you on this, 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 and this. So I thought I would just start class by by playing it. representatives of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Mormons. Our prophets have sent us to deliver a message given from God. Prophets? Message? Yes. We're here to tell you that God appeared to the prophet Joseph Smith in 1820, and he chose Joseph to restore the truth. He did. Yes. God told him Christianity had become completely corrupt. So you guys aren't Christians then? Oh, heavens, yes, we're Christians. After all, the name of our religion is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But you just said Christianity was all wrong. It is, but because of Joseph Smith, we know ours is the only true church on the earth. So, what's so bad about Christianity? Well, you see, everything you know about God is basically wrong. First of all, God is not a spirit. He's a perfected man with a glorified body of flesh. Huh? We believe a long, long time ago, on a planet far, far away, our God, Heavenly Father, was just like us. He was born mortal. Eventually, his efforts were rewarded, and he was exalted to Godhood, joining the other millions of gods in the universe. Millions of other gods. Yep, maybe even billions. Oh, that hurt. Oh, sorry. As he grew up, he worked hard at becoming perfect, just like all other gods did before him. Today, Heavenly Father lives on a distant planet. Next to the star, Kolob. He lives there with our Heavenly Mother having spirit babies. That's us. Yes, that's us. We all live there as spirits before we were born. We just don't remember. We come here to Earth to get a chance to work towards perfecting ourselves so that we'll be worthy enough to be exalted as gods. So you're saying you're going to become a god? Well, well yeah, I hope so. And just what do you mean by perfect yourselves? Well, we have to be completely faithful and obedient to our church and its rules. Rules? Well, just a few. Basically, just no drinking, no smoking, no gambling or swearing, no coffee. Or tea. No watching rated R movies, fornication, stealing, or lying. No shopping on Sundays. Dress modestly. Go to three hours of church every Sunday. Read the scriptures. Believe in Joseph Smith. Get baptized. Give 10% of your income to the church. Don't question the leaders. Serve in the church. And most importantly, temple, temple work. work. Temples? Is that what you call your churches? 
No, no. Temples are special buildings used only for secret ceremonies and rituals that are needed for godhood. So what do you do in these temples? Well, first we get anointed as kings and priests in heaven. Then we receive special holy underwear that we must wear for the rest of our lives. Uh, special holy underwear? Yes, special because they have sacred symbols on them that give us protection. Then we're given a new name, the one that we're going to be called in heaven. Then we're taught signs and passwords called tokens. We have to memorize them to be allowed into Heavenly Father's presence. If we show the signs to the guardian angels and tell them the passwords, they might let us in. And if we've earned it, then we will become exalted as gods. And can start creating and populating our own worlds. So just what is the secret sign and password? We, we, we can't tell you. We swear oaths not to talk about them. So they're secret? No, no, they're sacred. But you can't tell me? Right. Then that's a secret. Well, fine, it's a sacred secret. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is the only people who become gods are Mormons. What about everyone else who died hundreds of years before your temples were even built? Well, that's the best part. We do all of the ceremonies on behalf of those dead people, so it will count for them in the afterlife. Yeah, we get baptized for the dead, do the signs and passwords for the dead, and even do marriage ceremonies for the dead. Did I say something wrong? Now that managed to get a huge amount of Mormon theology into four and less than four and a half minutes. And most Mormons don't even know that they believe most of the stuff that's in there. And so the answer when somebody says they believe Jesus is the Son of God, well, what do you mean by God? And for them, God, they always refer to God the Father. And, okay. That just automatically went to the, let's quit that whole thing. Okay. So, um. What they mean by son of God, the God that he's the son of was a human being originally. The little phrase in Mormonism you have to remember is, as you are, God was. As God is, you will be. Okay? As, as you are, God was. That means he was once just a human being. And he got elevated to deity. And you too can be elevated to deity. So when they say son of God, that clearly indicates that he's generated by God through some sort of process of birth, not because he's identical with God as a separate ent entity that's eternal. And the second thing that, that, uh, that you have to remember that's not in here is that Jesus has a brother. Who's Jesus' brother in Mormonism? Lucifer. So that would mean if Jesus is the Son of God, then... Why wouldn't Lucifer be the son of God also? So you start hitting them with, with those kinds of questions, then you realize that, they, that son of God isn't, they're not meaning the same thing that Christianity says. And so we have to always think in terms of trying to ask questions, exposing what they actually believe, and, and in the process it wakes a lot of them up. Anyway, so that that's a good, quick understanding of basically what, what the Mormons believe, and they did a fa fabulous job with that little video. All right, let's turn to First Peter. First Peter's talking about how to handle trials and testing, and one of the doctrines that I emphasize and have emphasized for decades is that the Bible teaches that the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the grace of God and the work of Christ on the cross are sufficient 
for anything and everything that we face in life. Now, when you, now everybody says amen to that. You say grace is sufficient, amen. But you better not take Prozac. Wait a minute. Don't be touching my meds. Well, that's what we mean when we say the Word of God is sufficient, that when we have emotional problems, that that's ultimately grounded in our sin nature. Sin nature is in the flesh. Now, and, and people had problems with depression. They had problems with emotional ups and downs and all kinds of other things, anger, lust, sexual lust, perverted sexual lust, all kinds of things that are uh, chemically related, but they're not chemically based. And, and uh, one uh, person commented to me that, that depression isn't the result of a Prozac deficiency. Think about it. What these drugs do is they mask a lot of symptoms. Now, when we get off into two areas, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, because I want to go back and make sure people understand this, I've had a couple of questions that have, been, that have come in. We talk about schizophrenia and we talk about uh, bipolar. There are, I mean, the, nobody can point to a physiological cause for either one of those at this point. That's an important reality. If you've got tonsillitis, you can point to a cause for that. If you've got cancer, you can point to a, a physiological cause for that. If you've got schizophrenia or if you have bipolar, they can't point to that. That's not, now, they're not saying that it's not there, and I'm not saying it's not there. There are There's a lot of complexity to both of those, and over the last 30 years, the explanations change just like our understanding of the uh, of the mechanics of the brain change every five or ten years. I've heard pastors drill down on giving, making analogies out of how the brain functions. Maybe 30 years ago, this is how the brain functions. Let's make an analogy and use that to teach doctrine. Five years later, that that analogy of how the brain functions is out of date. It's no longer considered accurate. And you've built a doctrine not on Scripture, but you've built a doctrine on the view of science during that five-year period. Got a real problem there. What I pointed out when I quoted from the book, The State of the American Mind, and I quoted from the chapter dealing with anatomy of, a, uh, anatomy of an epidemic, uh, and the author of that chapter also wrote a book called The Anatomy of an Epidemic that came out in 2012. If you Google that or, or search that in Amazon, you can find the author's name, which escapes me at this point, but he's written a an, up to, an updated book where he is critiquing uh, the philosophy that undergirds modern psychiatric uh, practice. And psychiatry is the Psychology is you're, you're just is more philosophical than it is physiological. When you get when you combine a medical degree with psychology, that's called psychiatry. But both are ultimately girded in philosophical presuppositions, and the philosophical presupposition that governs psychiatry is evolution. And that is that there's no immaterial soul that all human behavior can be explained on the basis of chemical reactions. That assumption and that assumption alone is enough that it should cause us to be very skeptical of any kind of medical prescriptions that are given. Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong. 
Every case is different. We have folks in this congregation who have family members who have been diagnosed with schizophrenia. I'm not saying take them off the medications because you, you immediately take people off the of medications after they've been on them for a long period of time and they've changed that brain chemistry. You're going to create some real problems. What I am saying is you need to become much more educated. You need to read these articles, these books, and this article in State of the American Mind is, is heavily documented. Read the articles that are mentioned there. Educate yourself. Maybe you need to educate your doctor with some of this material and have, a, have conversations with your doctor about uh, what is going on and what this medication is all about. This is not something that should be entered into just because your doctor says, I've got the right medication, this will fix the problem. In some cases, the fix really is just drug the person so they don't do any damage to themselves or to others. As a pastor, based on the Word of God, as I told one person one time who said, well, these people need to be functional. As a pastor, my job is not to have such a low goal as to make you functional. My job is to make you able to excel in your Christian life. And the way to do that is to trust the Lord, trust the sufficiency of his grace and the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit. Now, when it comes to a couple of these other areas, I'm not telling you what you should or should not do. I'm not addressing that uh, fundamentally from the scripture. But I am saying that from a biblical worldview, we all need to be very careful and not just assume that somebody in the medical profession automatically knows uh, what's going on. In fact, if you read the article in State of the American Mind, he cites a number of instances showing where doctors, uh, well-known psychiatrists, just aren't, I don't know how any one person can keep up with all the data that's available today. Uh, it, it would just be impossible. And uh, a lot of this is, uh, e even pros or cons of some of this is just controversial. What I am saying is you need to be educated, you need to make an educated decision, and each case is, is different, and you need to be able to make your own decision you're responsible for your own decision to take care of members of your family, and you need to make those in an educated way. But fundamentally, as believers, we need to recognize that most problems that we face in life, even emotional problems, even problems where we have overwhelming problems with lust, whether it's sexual lust, whether it's food lust, whether it's whatever it could be, it all boils down to the fact that it comes originates out of our sin nature and we know what the solution to that part of the problem is. Now, the Bible promises us that we can have real significant joy in the Christian life, and yet we don't see a whole lot of Christians with it. Now, I want to make a point here. I have a uh, former seminary professor who I don't know. I'm not sure what he's doing now. He may be retired, but the last I heard, he was the president of CAM International, which was originally Central American Mission, which was founded by a guy by the name of C.I. Schofield. Some of you recognize that name from a Schofield reference Bible. And this, this professor's name was Ron Blue. And Ron Blue was vaccinated with an electrical shock. I mean, this guy just bounces off all the walls. He's extremely high energy, and he's probably the, the, the happiest guy I've ever seen. That's his personality. 
But I had him speak at uh, a church I pastored. Somebody came up to me afterwards who was not favorable to my uh, ministry. He said, oh, wasn't he wonderful? He really had the joy of the Lord. You know, he didn't have the joy of the Lord. That that was his personality. And there's some unbelievers, you know, unbelievers like that. They're manic. They're just happy all the time, and they're just excited, and they're they're very positive about it. But that's just their personality. That has that's not what the Bible talks about when it talks about the joy of the Lord. The Bible talks about a state of tranquility, contentment, uh, joy that is stable, that isn't affected by circumstances or people or events. That is a supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit that is provided and increases as we grow in our spiritual walk. And First Peter is, this first section of First Peter really emphasizes that, as I have pointed out uh, last week in our introduction to this section. Now, we, we're looking at the three phases of our salvation. Phase one is justification, which means to be saved from the penalty of sin takes place in an instant of time when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and in that instant we are regenerate, we, are, we receive simultaneously the perfect righteousness of Christ, and we are declared to be just. We are become a new baby, but that new baby needs to grow, and that process of growth from spiritual birth until the time that we die physically is the spiritual life. That's also referred to as uh, progressive or experiential sanctification where we're saved from the power of the sin nature. Then in phase three, we're absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. We're saved from the presence of sin, and we're now face to face with the Lord. This book is talking about that period between the cross and the grave. It's focusing on how to be delivered or saved in the midst of trials and testing, persecution, hardship, adversity in this life. So the word saved primarily focuses on this period, being saved from the uh, presence, I mean, excuse me, saved from the power of sin, being saved from, or delivered from uh, testing and, and trials. So the, here's the text. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And I'm pointing out at the end, that last verse is the deliverance of your life. All the way through here, Peter is talking about being delivered in the midst of fiery trials. So that's, it, there's a parallel passage to this in James, and it's understood the same way there. It's the deliverance of life, experiencing the abundant life, the rich, full, abundant life that Christ has for us. I use this chart to point out the key words. Notice we have rejoice once in one six, rejoice and joy in one eight. Three times joy is referenced. That's the focal point of this section, is the real joy that we can have, even though for a little while, as one six says, we may be grieved through various trials. Life may be difficult. 
Our entire life may be difficult. We may be in poverty. We may be persecuted. We may be thrown in prison. We may be abused and in a negative situation from our friends and family because of our stand for Jesus Christ. But that's just a little while in comparison with with eternity. And even in the midst of those negative circumstances, we can have joy. Now, if we go negative and we focus on the circumstances and let our sin nature dictate those sad, depressed, anxious, sinful uh, emotions, then there are biological and physiological consequences to that, which will generate certain chemicals being produced physiologically that in turn can cause greater problems and can have a, have a very negative impact on our, on our brain and our brain chemistry. And because we're letting the sin nature dominate, and over an extended period of time, that can become very difficult to reverse. But if we're still alive, God still has a plan for our life, and the grace of God is sufficient. It may be harder, but the grace of God is still sufficient to resolve those problems. That's the hope that Scripture gives us, that no matter what we're going through, the solution is always uh, the Word of God and the grace of God. Now, in this slide, I've circled the various words, rejoice, various trials in verse 6, genuineness and tested in verse 7 along with faith, and then down in verse 8, rejoice and joy, and then in verse 9, uh, the end of your faith, telos. And the reason I've done that is all of those words show up in James 1, 2 through 4, showing that both James and Peter are saying the same thing. Now, as I pointed out last time, James is probably the first New Testament epistle written. Peter is not the last, but it is later. He is very much aware of most of Paul's writings. He writes this epistle sometime in probably in the early 60s, uh, maybe three or four years before he's martyred and Paul is martyred. And so it's not late. And he's very familiar with Paul's writing. So he's not, uh, even though he's writing to Jews, he's, we'll get into the, understanding that connection later on. He is giving us doctrinal truth for the spiritual life for every believer, even though his target initial audience is Jewish. Now, that some people may say, well, if his target audience is Jewish, how well does that apply to us as Gentiles? Let me give you another analogy. I addressed that last time. If Paul is writing to a target audience in Philippi, how much does that apply to Americans? Just because there's a cultural historical difference doesn't mean the spiritual truths are different. Okay? So he's targeting Jews in a particular historical situation, and he's going to take illustrations that relate to them but they're not exclusively Jewish to the exclusion of Gentiles. They're true for every, every church-age believers. So as I pointed out last time, the theme of this section, this verses 6 to 9, is rejoicing in the midst of the present fiery trial because of our knowledge of the Word and our love for Christ, which enables us to look to a future deliverance in this life as well as the glories to come. It's not just saying we're going to be delivered when we get to heaven in phase three, but there's a holdout for real deliverance that even if you're still in prison, 
even if you're in horrible circumstances, it doesn't mean that, that you can't have the joy, the real joy of the Holy Spirit characterizing, uh, characterizing your, your life. So I pointed out James, so turn over, you just have to turn back about three pages in your Bible probably, and you'll be at James chapter 1. And James is important, as I said, because James is the first New Testament book, and the theme of James is how to persevere. In other words, how to hang in there, how to be steadfast in the midst of the trials when you don't feel like going on, when you feel overwhelmed, when you feel discouraged, when you feel depressed. Uh, one of the things that I do is, is I try to work out. It's harder every year as you get older to keep a, a, a good workout program or even to eat right and to keep your weight down. Most of you know something about that. And it's just a matter of keeping with it. It's sticking to it. You have some mornings I wake up and I say, I'm just going to sleep late this morning. I look at that workout drill and I think, hmm, I'm not doing even a modified, even a scaled down handstand push-up today. I'm just, which is just dumbbell presses. I'm not even doing that. I'm just going to stay in bed today. Uh, It's 90 degrees for a low almost. I'm not going to get out and run a half a mile this morning. But the next day you get up and you just go do it. You stick with it. It's like going to Bible class. Sometimes you're tired. You come home at the end of the day and say, I can't sit there. It's too cold in that church. I'm just going to freeze to death. Or it's too hot in the church. I hear both. Some people say, it needs to be a little cooler. Other people say, I need a sweater in here. Some people wrap up in a blanket. Can't please everybody. We try to hit, the, hit a mean in there somewhere. But uh, some people say, you know, I just can't make it there tonight. Great. Live stream. Get some sleep. Come back the next night. But you don't give up. You struggle with what we face. We all face things. I'm always amazed when I get to know people how many people struggle with some issue you would never know anything about. And that's because we live in a fallen world. We live in a corrupt world. We're not Democrats. We're not trying. We can't perfect the world, and we know it. That's the essence of liberalism because they don't really believe the world is inherently corrupt. So they think uh, that it's perfectible. That's the presupposition of all liberal philosophy and theology is that man is perfectible and society is perfectible. But, But we don't believe that. We believe we live in a corrupt world. But nevertheless, God gives us the grace to handle it and to live in it, so we're going to face adversity. So James says, starts off saying, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And he starts off with the command here. He First of all, he says, My brethren, which tells you that he's talking to believers. And he talks to this, uses that phrase, My brethren, my brethren, my beloved brethren, all the way through. That's a term for other believers. So James isn't about trying to figure out the difference between believers and unbelievers, but how believers can re- can persevere and have the joy of the Lord in their life. And I believe when when I, the last time I taught James extensively, which was in '98, that 
James starts off with this command, and the rest of the epistle is to help us understand how to do this, how to reach that state in our spiritual growth where we can experience suffering and adversity and difficulty and be joyful in the midst of it. And that verb is from the this word, hegeomai, to count or to reckon or to consider something, it's an aorist imperative, meaning that it is a, 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 a it's a priority command. Uh, he's emphasizing this as something they need to do now, and it, it means to think or to reason or to consider or to regard. It's a thinking word. It's not feel joy. It's think in terms of joy. Get your head straight. Focus on the Word of God. Focus on the fact that Jesus Christ went through probably 10,000 times more pain and suffering than you can ever imagine, much less experience. And he did it, why? Hebrews 12:2. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Key words, joy and endurance. And right in the middle of it, it's talking about the most intense suffering that any human being ever experienced. And so we're to have that mindset. It's a mental attitude issue. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And that verb to fall into has the idea of something unexpected happened. You know, you're on your way home from Bible class, you've tired, you had a long day, and all of a sudden you realize you had a blowout. And you're not in a great part of town, and you've got to call AAA and wait for them. That's falling into a test. Now, a test, I had some people think this one time, that a test is something that is significant. Well, we've all had tests that were significant, and we've had tests that weren't significant. I mean, in terms of school. We've had tests that were just easy. We could take them blindfolded. We have other tests that, that were we had to really cram for and we had to study for. But this is talking about the fact that any time we're in a position in life and we have to choose between applying the word or doing it our own way, that's the test. It's like Adam and Eve in the garden. Eat the fruit or don't eat the fruit. Obey or disobey. That's always the test. Sometimes the issues are grander and more serious. Sometimes the issues are trivial. But it's always obey or disobey. That's always the bottom line. So count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And so we want to look at the role of joy in the Christian life. So I have about five or six points here on joy. Joy must be understood as a supernatural gift. It's the fruit of the Spirit, we know. It's a supernatural joy. It is not natural happiness or uh, sort of a natural state of euphoria. It is supernaturally produced. It's a gift that Jesus gave to church-age believers. John fifteen eleven. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. In the first ten verses, he's talking about abiding in fellowship, walking with him, abiding with him. And then he says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you. And once again, we have translators who quit translating the word the way they've been translating it in the previous 10 verses, so now you miss the point. He says, "My joy that my joy may abide in you. 
It's the same word minnow that he started using back in verse 2 when he says, Abide in me, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, and you will bear much fruit. It has to do with walking by the Spirit, walking in fellowship. And if we abide in Him... Now, abiding in Him isn't getting in fellowship one minute and out of fellowship the next minute. That's like walking in and out the front door of your house and never sitting down inside the house and enjoying a meal, visiting with your husband or your wife or your kids, watching TV, uh, participating in whatever your uh, enthusiasms are inside the house. A lot of Christians are so busy, they're just going in the front door, and then they're out the front door. Then they're back in the front door, and they're out. They're not abiding in Christ. So if you abide in Christ, then we experience this joy that he gives us. That And he says, that my joy may remain in you or abide in you, and that your joy may be full. Now, he can't say it any stronger than that, so that you can have this rich experience of the joy that I'm giving you. (coughs) Now, that means that this joy is a product of walking by the Spirit. This is one of the ways that we know that walking by the Spirit and abiding in Christ are the same thing. They both produce joy. So if you have one thing that's produced by abiding and and it's also produced by walking, that tells you that walking by the Spirit and abiding in Christ are roughly the same thing if they're the cause of having joy. So the joy is a product of walking by the Spirit. Romans fifteen thirteen. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace By believing, instrumental there, it's not in believing, it's by believing. So that's part of the exercise of faith rest drill. That you may abound in hope. So joy is related to, joy and peace are related to hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the agent of that joy. And then Galatians 5.22, which follows Galatians, the Galatians 5.16 command to walk by the Spirit, says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, and secondly, joy, third, peace. That's the product of the Holy Spirit when we're walking by Him. You run into a lot of Christians who say, I just don't experience that. Well, I'm not sure that you have people who are having a relationship with God. A lot of people have a relationship with doctrine. They study the Bible, they go to Bible class, but studying the Bible and knowing the Bible is not the end in itself. It's the means to an end. That's how we come to know the Father. That's how we come to know the Son. That's how we come to have a relationship with the triune God is by having that fellowship, enjoying that fellowship with Him. The result of that walk by the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit. He produces this in our life as we mature. Even baby believers experience all of these to a small degree if they're beginning to walk and beginning to grow. And as we grow and as we mature, we experience them to a greater and greater degree. The third thing we need to recognize is that this joy is not mutually exclusive of experiencing sorrow or grief. Now, that's a really important statement because there's a lot of Christians who think, I'm just, I I just am always struggling with the blues. I I just have this, this, 
this low level of sort of depression. Well, that may be your sin nature. That may be related to any number of factors, but that's not mutually exclusive of the joy of the Lord. Being sad, grieving over the loss of a loved one is not mutually exclusive to joy. Being discouraged and depressed to some degree over the fact that you've lost your job and you haven't seen a paycheck in a year and you're not sure how you're going to pay your next bills and your health is deteriorating, it's not mutually exclusive to the joy of the Lord. See, we have this idea that if I have the joy of the Lord, then I'm not going to experience those things. John 16, 20 Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament. He's talking to the disciples, and he's talking about what's around the corner with his death on the cross. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. Lupeo, that's the same word that's going to be used in 1 Peter, except it's the noun in 1 Peter. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow, lupe, will be turned into joy. So he's not saying that you won't experience sorrow, sadness, and, or grief. Therefore, he says, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. Now there he's talking about the fact that he's giving us joy so we can have a permanent state of that joy. And uh, that joy is based on thinking the word of God. James 1.2, which is a passage we're studying, counted all joy. And 1 Peter 1.6, he says, In this, that's the content in verses 3 through 5, you greatly rejoice. But notice what he goes on to say at, in, in verse 6, Even though for a little while, if need be, uh, you have been grieved by various trials. So there he recognizes in one six that we rejoice at the same time we're grieving because of various trials. Verse 5, I mean, point 5, this joy is often expressed in and through intense adversity, suffering, and grief. 2 Corinthians 8.2 says that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Talking about how the Macedonians generously gave even in the midst of their poverty, adversity, and suffering. Now, when we get into looking at the word lupe, we're going to see that the Lord, that same word describes the mental attitude, the state of the Lord's emotions the night before he went to the cross the state of his emotions. He grieved deeply and was distressed, but he didn't let those emotions influence his decision. He didn't say, I feel terrible. I just can't do this, Lord. I just can't can't face the cross. I'm going to have to do something else. He said, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So he doesn't let the negative emotions dictate his actions. He doesn't let them cause him to make wrong decisions. So joy is a fruit of the Spirit, and we implement it through thinking and focusing on doctrine. Count it all joy. Now, the next word that we see here is that word joy. I want to make a point here on understanding joy. This is the word kara. 
standard word that is used for joy and refers to, to happiness. But what we'll see is that this isn't the same word that's used in First Peter. And one of the things that I try to point out is that words matter. The Holy Spirit chooses the words that are there. If we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, then that means the words that the Holy Spirit uses are, are significant, that he may use one word for joy in one place, and he may use another word in another place. And sometimes that might be just a stylistic variation, but we better pay attention that that's the last option we choose that probably the Holy Spirit chose this for a reason. And it's really interesting when we look at this. In James, he uses the word joy. I think this is a broad word, and a narrower synonym is the word that's used in 1 Peter 1.6, agaliao, whereas kara can express a range of joy, Hagaliao represents a more exuberant, exalting, rejoicing. It's more active, more dynamic, a little more manic, perhaps. We'll see that in just a minute. In this, you greatly rejoice. That's what he's saying. It's not just this, you have joy, but you greatly rejoice. You're celebrating. That's the idea. I want you to think about this in terms of the passages that I'm going to bring out. So how is this word agaliao used when we look at Scripture? I want you to point, uh, I want you to observe a couple of things as we look at these these verses. Uh, Agaliao is only used 11 times in the New Testament. So this isn't a very, very popular, very popular word. So its use is distinctive. Joy is used, I didn't look up how many times joy was used, but it's used numerous times, many, many more times then agaliao is used. In 1 Peter 1, 6, it, it uses the verb agaliao, and this is a more intensified idea. It adds this emotional exaltation to the idea of just a stable mental attitude, a mental attitude of joy. And let me show you a couple of passages where both words are used in the same context, and that brings out the distinction. Matthew 5.10, guess what the context is? So here we have a Galileo, and the context is suffering. It's a context of persecution. It's a context of rejection. It's a context of people resenting you because you're a Christian. He says, Jesus is teaching Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You're doing the right thing, and people despise you for it. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. So you're slandered, you're called bad names, people just rant about you on Facebook and what a horrible person you are because you oppose homosexual marriage and that, you know, we just need to get rid of all these vile, nasty, judgmental Christians and then we can all be happy. Well, that's what's going on. It's getting worse. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice. But the rejoice command there is kara. That's counted all joy. It says rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Hagaliao. So, uh, and I misspelled it there. I put a Z in there. It's hagaliao. So that's the word. It's, it goes beyond joy. It's not only joy, but be, but celebrate. 
Be excited. Be a little uh, enthusiastic about it. For great is your reward in heaven. See, the reason you rejoice is not because you love the rejection. You're not a sadist. You're not a masochist. You're not saying, just beat me up and hate me, and I'll be happy. Just revile me, and that will make me feel good. You rejoice because you know that if you're walking by the Spirit, this accrues to divine good, and there will be great reward at the judgment seat of Christ. That's what Jesus says. For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now we have this word of Galiao in 1 Peter 1.8, but we have it again, and again I misspelled it uh, on the slide. Again, we have uh, it mentioned in 1 Peter 1.8. It's on 1.6, now it's in 1.8, saying, Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believe you rejoice. There it is. Hagaliao, you rejoice with joy. So you celebrate with joy. Kara. Both words are used there, inexpressible and full of joy. And then when we get to the end of the epistle, Peter says, Rejoice, that's that same word again, to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. Now connect the dots to those who are joint heirs with Christ if we suffer with him. We're talking about rewards and and, and an extra layer of inheritance at the judgment seat of Christ. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad, Cairo, that's the verb from Kara, with exceeding joy, Hagaliao again. Now, you know what's interesting here is that you have a connection here with glory. Glory is mentioned in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 8. You have glory mentioned along with joy and the glorifying the Lord. And then we get to the end of the tribulation period. The end of the tribulation period sees the second coming of Christ. He comes on a white horse. The saints, that's you and me, are with him. And he's coming to destroy the devil, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and to defeat the kings of the earth at the campaign of Armageddon. And what we're told when that happens is John says, let us be glad, Cairo, let us have joy, and rejoice. Notice we have those two words and a distinction made, rejoice is a step up, and give him glory. Notice glory is mentioned again with, with joy. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. So we're talking about the fact that rejoice is activating the joy that's in our soul, I think, and acting upon it in a way where we are going to learn to rejoice even over the suffering. And I've, I've read you stories before about these uh, six, uh, 16th century uh, martyrs in England who refused to recant their Protestant faith and were persecuted and were uh, executed and burned at the stake. And I always remember the example of Thomas Cramner. And Thomas Cramner had been the archbishop under Henry. And then when Mary, uh, Bloody Mary, Mary Tudor became queen, uh, he, was, uh, uh, he was tortured. And he recanted. That finally, they said that, you know, you, we won't kill you if you recant. And he couldn't stand the torture. He recanted his faith, and they said, eh, we're going to burn you at the stake anyway. And when they tied him up, 
and they lit the fires at Smithfield. He held out the hand that had signed his recantation into the fire so that that hand that had betrayed the Lord would be burned off. And while his arm burned, he sang hymns to the glory of God. That is the grace of God. That is the Holy Spirit giving joy to a person's soul in the midst of incredible adversity and persecution. So Peter says, in this, understanding who you are in Christ, your regeneration all the way to your, in, to your reward of the judgment seat of Christ, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while. Now he's not just talking about the fact that you may go through a bad year or two or five or ten. But it may be your life. And it may be short-lived. It may be long-lived. But when we are face-to-face with the Lord, we're going to forget it. Every tear, sorrow, pain will be wiped away, and we will not remember these things anymore. But now for a little while, we may be grieved by these various trials. Now, this is where we see how grief can sometimes walk hand-in-hand with the joy of the Lord. First Peter 1.6 uses this word lupeo. Lupe is the noun, lupeo is the verb, and it's usually translated sorrow or grief or sadness. It's translated sorrowful in Matthew 26.37. This is the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus took P- Peter, sleepy Peter and John, and James with him, the same guys he took up on on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they fell asleep, as Luke says. These guys were some drowsy guys. Maybe they just stayed up two night talking about the Word of God, but uh, they were they would fall asleep when they got a chance, like some people in Bible class. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful, lupeo, and greatly or deeply distressed. This is the Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is under such emotional turmoil that he sweated blood through his pores. Okay, this isn't just some light, I'm kind of concerned about tomorrow, it's going to be a little rough. This is serious emotional distress. Having the emotional distress isn't the sin. It's giving into it or acting upon it, that's the sin. Did Jesus ever lose his joy? Never once. So he has maximum joy, maximum happiness because of his relationship with the Lord in his humanity, but at the same time, he's sweating blood. And that's great comfort. This is the same word that Peter uses, in, I mean, Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 when he talks about the fact that when we experience the death of a loved one, a child, when we experience the death of a child, a friend, a spouse, a parent, we're going to grieve. That is normal because we're corrupt. We're living in a fallen world. God didn't design us to go through grief. Uh, Adam and Eve, if Adam and Eve had never sinned, they'd have never grieved. Grief is a symptom of of the fallen nature of man having to deal with something God never intended, but it's dealing with the penalty of sin or the consequences of sin. And so Paul says that we sorrow, 
but not like those who have no hope. So it's not an overwhelming, crushing sorrow. It may seem that way at times, especially if someone's been married and at 30, 40, 50, 60 years, and that person has always been next to them, and they've enjoyed life and the Lord together, and one day they're in that bed all by themselves, and that'll, that relationship will never return. That is sad. That is having to learn. That's going through a whole new test, a test of loneliness. And that is a whole new test for their spiritual life. And all of us, well, not all of us, but many of us will face that at some point in our lives. We may outlive our, we may outlive our spouse and we'll be the one who has to face that test of loneliness. And it's not easy. Um, the only way you can survive is the grace of God. And then we have joy even in the midst of sorrow. So Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved, and you will feel grief at times when you go through certain intensive tests by various Trials. Now, that word for various trials is interesting. It's the same word that we have in James 1 2. James says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And I've put the Greek phrase from 1 Peter 1 6 up on the screen. It's poikilois perosmois. And it's poik- the root is poikilos, which is where we get our word polka dot from poikilois. And it means variegated. Something that is, uh, that is variegated. So we're going to run into these various different colors and shapes and sizes of trials. And it's the same phrase that we have in James 1, 2. They're both the same. We're going to run into all kinds of shapes, sizes, colors of tests. And those tests were designed by God for you. I might pass that test very easily. I'm not going to go in through that kind of a test. My test is going to be different. You may look at my test and go, why doesn't he get it? Well, that's because it's tailored to the weakness in my sin nature, just like your tests are tailored to the weakness in your sin nature, because God is trying to teach us to rely upon him so that, like Paul, we can say, your grace is sufficient for me, and I boast in my weaknesses because then your strength is magnified and glorified. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to reflect upon your grace, your provision for us. The fact is that, as Job says, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. We are going to face heartache, hardship. Sometimes it's passive rejection. Sometimes it's active hostility. Sometimes it's just a look. Sometimes it's a a little bit of sarcasm, but we're going to face opposition because we're Christians. The Scripture says clearly that those who desire to be godly will be persecuted in one way or another. We will suffer because of Christ. And by uh, encountering that suffering and applying the word, we will be rewarded and we will become joint heirs with Christ as we apply the word in the midst of those challenging circumstances. But the promise is we have hope, We have joy. We can rejoice even though those tests are upon us and we grieve, recognizing it's just for a little while. 
We just have to do it a little bit longer, and we'll survive. And you will strengthen us, and your grace will be magnified in our lives, and you'll be glorified. Father, we pray that you would strengthen our wills, help us to face the challenges of life on the basis of your word and your spirit. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.